This week on the Square Mile Boxing Innovators podcast, it's delightful to be joined by Hall of Fame boxing promoter Frank Warren. How are you, Frank? I'm good, thank you, Martin. How are you? I'm I'm good. I'm very good, thank you. And thank you very much for your time and um, sharing. I know you've got a lot going on at the moment in terms of both the current and looking back over your, your 40 years in the sport. Um, and it's going to be my pleasure to run back through some of those experiences uh, with you this afternoon. Okay, I look forward to that. It's actually, I'll keep, it's 40 years as a boxing, as a British Boxing Board of Control, and I had four years prior to that in the, in the uh, unlicensed shows, as they call them. Yeah, so that's exactly where I wanted to start off, if you're okay. We'll, no um, problem. So I had the uh, the pleasure of getting a preview of your, your BT Sport documentary, um, and so, yeah, if you touch upon that, so the work that you did with Lenny McLean, um, your second cousin, through the unlicensed fights, and then if I kind of skip through some of it, it was um, the journalist Larry Bartleman who um, kind of convinced you to go and do it professionally outside of the unlicensed. Is that correct? Yeah, but Wally, Wally Bartleman. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. 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 So he had seen, presumably, what you were doing on the unlicensed scene and the the kind of numbers that you were generating, um, which I'm guessing, without knowing the context of it myself personally, were huge numbers for what that scene was at the time. Yeah, I mean, it started off being like, uh, I mean, when the first first time I ever see it, I went to see Lenny fight, the first fight he had with Roy Shaw, and it was in a, a, in a nightclub, I don't know if it's over South London or Stratton somewhere, called Sinatra, spelt with a C, and they probably had about you know, 1,200 people in there. Um, and, you know, we, I took it into, when I got involved, I then, you know, got it into bigger venues. We had a 3,000-seater. And if you think at the time, the Royal Albert Hall was the, Royal Albert Hall and Wembley were the two venues in London that, that hosted, uh, world, you know, hosted all the um, Mickey Duff cartel shows. And the Albert Hall was about 5,000-seater. I think out of that, about 1,500 were um, debentures. So we, we was pretty much on the same foot in the same. And they they they'd had a little period where they got some stick from some bad matching that matches that were going on. There was a famous or infamous night in boxing called the Night of the Tijuana Tumblers, and I think they had four Mexican fighters on against uh, some British fighters, and they had a total of something like six or seven rounds for the whole of the whole of those fights. So they were getting a lot of stick, and, and the shows I was getting involved in, they were quite they were quite competitive. I mean, not the great standard, but because but they were a bit like Donkey Derby's compared, but at least they were exciting to watch. And I didn't know any different by them. By, by the way, you know, I was I was a fan. I did, you know, I I, I used to go to the shows. I, I think, you know, as I mentioned, uh, I had another cousin who who was a professional boxer, so I used to go see him. And I had a couple of friends who were fighters. Um, and I just got bitten by the bug, and we, we, you know, and I really enjoyed it. Wally came along to come at some of the shows. He, he also came from Islington, the same place to me. He was a, much older than me. He was a former tank commander in the World War II. Gruff old bloke. Didn't stand any nonsense. And I remember him turning around. I mean, he had a very gruff voice. You know, he, he actually said, stop fucking around with this, and why don't you take the licence out? And he sat on the area council with a British, uh, Southern Area Council with a British box of border control. And I don't know, but next next minute I'm in I'm in there and they granted me a license. And they I think they wanted to be in the tent instead of outside. <laughs> but they they made it hard work for me. They were so biased in those days, so partisan towards uh, the cartel. 
everything I did was a major problem. And naively, I didn't think about looking at a rule book because there was no rule book where I came from. You just got on with it and did it. And they were using uh, the rule book and what they call policies that were unwritten. If it weren't in the rules, it was some policy they dug up saying, I, you know, you can't do this. You can't have live boxing on t- uh, live TV uh, uh, coverage of boxing. You can't have more than two major shows on uh, within 14 days of each other. All these sort of things that they were they were bringing in. So I had to sort of wise up very quickly and do a bit of studying, having lost a lot of money on my first show. And uh, you know, just got on with it and just took them on and, and 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 actually enjoyed it. I enjoyed the competition. It was good and it was good fun. It really I was younger and obviously I've always had a lot of in, energy and been blinkered, blinkered vision, and I just got on with it. So if you went back to that day now when you got convinced into um doing it professionally and not the unlicensed, would you make the same decision? Yeah, well, if I if I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't have done the unlicensed. Okay. Because I didn't know any different. It wasn't, it wasn't, I just didn't know any different. I got involved in it because of Lenny. And I only got involved in it because at the time he made this rematch with um uh with Roy Shaw, having been beaten by Roy Shaw. He should have won the fight. I went to see it. It was, it was, it was terrible. But he, he they made a rematch and uh he never trained for it. And the first and the second fight, my uncle took him down to Freddie Hill, who trained Johnny Wall. Uh, my cousin and his nephew as well took him down there and, and Freddie, you know, without anybody knowing, because he was a li- licensed by the board of control, he trained Lenny for the fight. He couldn't get in the corner. So on the night of the fight, my uncle and myself were in his corner. I didn't even know what I was doing. I mean, I knew nothing about corner work whatsoever. I was just a punter who used to go and watch the fights. I mean, I, I knew what, you know, watch a fight and, you know, that sort of had a good eye for sort of things, but, I never knew. We were in there because we were told that Lenny was, if Lenny won, there was going to be, he was going to have a problem, and that's why I wound up in the corner. So that's the God's honest truth, and uh, that's how I got involved. And then it was, uh, they then had a rubber match, and and the Satan Shaw's people wanted to promote it. They offered Lenny derisory money, and I just piped up and said, "Look, we'll do it ourselves. We need you." And I come out, and my uncle said to me, "What are you, what are you, what are you saying? What you, what you say that for?" So I looked, I said, we're going to have to do it now, aren't we? So we have to get on with it. And that's exactly what we did. Do you have a soft spot now for the kind of current unlicensed scene that goes on? Or do you wonder why on earth they're doing it? I look at it differently as I did then. You know, when I got involved, there was the medical side. It just, you know, someone would show up, a doctor would show up and, you know, it, it, it was on. But he was paid to come along. When when I got involved in it, I then formed a thing called the National Boxing Council. We actually got on some some good medical people on board. And, and I changed my whole view because there was a lot of ex-fighters. There was guys who shouldn't be fighting, guys whose licenses were taken away. But I didn't know that day one because I'm just watching it. And that is that there, there lies the problem. It, you know, what do I do? I, do I have any, what goes on today? Well, a lot of these people wouldn't get licenses. They'd fight because they've got it inside them. And that's why you need a British Boxing Board of Control. That's why you need an organisation to monitor people, to give them, you know, their, their MRI scans, brain scans, and check them medically on a regular basis to ensure that, they, that there's no brain damage or deterioration, that they're, you know, that medically, what in a very de- dangerous sport, that they are, that they're, that they're able to, 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 to defend themselves, to go in there and fight. The problem 
whilst I, I, I look at it now and, and see and understand, because I've, I've come from that background, see why they want to do it, I, I find it, I, 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 um, I prefer it not to be going on. Yeah. And I can speak from experience. You know, I know it's not going to affect me whether they fight or not financially or anything. It's not. It's no. It's no challenge to what what I do or any other British boxing border control promoter does. But it it it's it is a danger to themselves. So if we fast forward a few years, um, <coughs> we go, your first licensed event was 1980. Um, what what stands out? What's the the residing memory from that kind of first event that you did as a professional boxing promoter? That I lost a lot of money, and and it was and I I assumed that I assumed because obviously the, the guys who who I'd been who I'd been uh, who were who I'd, the shows that I'd been putting on they were quite big ticket sellers but they never had boxing border controlled licenses so there was a few people who said you know brought their fathers along oh they're big ticket sellers well none of them sold any tickets I had these two Americans on and I was going to get some TV for the fight from the states. It was for a, an American title. They were both well well ranked, and it had all the hallmarks. I remember boxing no, news at the time were really looking forward to this fight. Everybody said it'd be a great fight. It was a stinker of a fight. It was an awful fight. The main event. I could have driven a double decker bus around the arena and not knocked anyone over. It was empty, so it was a. I got my ass kicked, so it was a quite a learning experience for me. And uh, and it, but but you look. Know, you know, painful lessons sometimes are the best ones. And if you don't learn from them, then you're a fool. And as you progress through the years, you had the plans in place for the London Arena down at the Docklands. So for yeah. those that are unaware that it was partnered with Harvey Goldsmith and Lord Seldston. Correct. What do you think that arena would have achieved for box? Because nobody's ever done that before as a, a promoter kind of invested in their own establishment, their own... Um, their own boxing arena. And I know there was plans for other entertainment types as well to take place, but should that have come off? What do you think that would have done for boxing in the UK? Well, it did. I mean, it's where Ben and McClellan took place in London Arena. You know, we we had a lot of fights there. We had a lot of uh, Harvey, with Harvey and, and myself, Pavarotti played there. We had Pink Floyd there. Everything, every, everything we said we would do, we did. We hit all our targets as far as, <coughs> excuse me, as far as, um, the selling the nights and and the exhibitions that we put on the the the, the uh, um, Pavarotti played there. You know, we had everybody played. I, I brought Sinatra over. Sinatra played there. So, and it was difficult because no one wanted to go to Docklands. Now all the newspapers, most of them are, are, are down there. They're all saying it's in the middle of nowhere. Where we got let down was the infrastructure. The fact that I got shot didn't help. That caused a big problem because I I. I I'd sold 49% of it or done a deal for 49% of it to a syndicate of uh, banks. And that would have, well, that just would have set it up for life. Um, the, it didn't help the um, Hillsborough disaster because they brought safety legislation in, which in mid building it, we had to change a lot, spend a lot of money on, on you know, for obviously for the benefit of the public, changing uh, or bringing it up to the new, new regulations they brought in. And the big killer for us was the interest rate went to about sixteen percent. We were paying three, four percent over on our on our borrowings, and I and I I'd get personally guaranteed a lot of the money. You know, the arena was the arena works. We hit all our targets, but as I say, the shooting didn't help. And obviously, um, it you know it it would just become you know with the interest rate, it just become really tough for us. Yeah. Do you ever look back at it and think 
what it could you know as if it was a missed opportunity for the sport like if there could and should have been more boxing you know going through to today oh there would have been i mean if it's still been going there would have been a lot of a lot of fights there you know you asked anybody who was there for the uh you know it's talking about that you know probably one of the most famous fights that took place there and one of the most dramatic and tragic fights that took place certainly that i've ever promoted in ben mcclellan and the place was absolutely it was rocking like you can't believe and it wasn't a bad seat in there it was, it was great viewing all around um it was a it was and the reason it was because we put a lot of work into it, you know, being from a, a, you know, being on the other side of it, being promoters, Harvey and myself, we made sure it, it was it was gonna it was gonna be uh, the best arena. Um, and AEG fund, uh, I think it was AEG, took it over eventually, and uh, then they and I, and I got I managed to get consent to build four tower blocks on the on each of the corners, and they it was they then took the uh, O2 over. And it was turned into offices. It, they, it, you know, I think it's a nearly a three hundred million quid development. So I don't even want to think about that. But that's oh, someone different. did all right. Sorry, um, man. I say someone did all right out of it. They did. If we go forward into the nineties, then I wanted to touch on um, the Michael Watson case and your involvement in the the settlement of it, because um, it's kind of it's well documented. I think that you were involved in. Paying out some of the settlement was it a hundred thousand pound of the four hundred thousand that you assisted with the payment as a kind of advanced tournament? <clears throat> what what happened was that I was read uh, you know it, obviously the case was going on. Mike, I'd never promoted Michael and, and Watson, and he was you know obviously he was wheelchair bound, bound, um, and the boxing board of control were fighting this case that he brought against them, and. He was successful in the case. I think he got awarded, rough, um, um, top of med, roughly a million pounds, and quite rightly in damages. And they were the, the border control were were fighting to not, you know, to to um, uh, to to, to, to uh, appealing that decision. And also, if they weren't going to win, they were going to they were going to go into administration. And I just I I just couldn't believe what was going on. They'd spent nearly probably about one and a half million pounds defending the case, whereas they could have plenty, they could have reached a settlement rather than pay the lawyers, settled with him. You know, at the end of the day, right's right, wrong's wrong. And and, and they had they had screwed up. Certain things that should have happened didn't happen. Um the the unfortunate thing for for Michael was, you know, obviously the state it left him in. He was lucky to to be alive. And I felt that you know something needed to be done. So I rang um, guy called Al Hamilton, who was a who was a journalist, on um, and a very good friend of Michael and his family, um, and he uh, he arranged a meeting, and I said to him, "Look, let's try and get this resolved because this is going nowhere. The border control at the end of the day are going to you know are not going to pay him, and you know that's not going to be good for him." And I eventually got him in a room together and trying to bash out a settlement between them. And the border control still were quite reticent in in paying, and I think we got to a stage where I'd guaranteed we'd put I'd put on a fundraiser, and I guaranteed whatever happened, he'd, he'd at least walk away with two hundred grand from that. Plus, we were short in the that they were going to pay some money, but they didn't want to pay the money that he wanted. So I think I put another thirty, or I think it's thirty fifty thousand pounds in myself, and on top of that, to ensure that he got his money. To get it resolved, because I just thought it, I thought it was terrible. Most importantly for Michael, it's terrible for boxing. 
and it needed to be sorted out. And uh, thankfully we did. And it led to at least Michael had made his life more comfortable. Yeah. And I mean, the other side of it was that you funded the, the MRI scans for all boxes. Was that correct? That is correct. Yeah. I mean, why? It's an obvious question, I suppose. Why did you do that? I mean, is it a sense of um, self responsibility for those that yeah. are in the sport? I, I, well, I was a bit disappointed, guys. Man, I, I, you know, we are. I thought I thought we'd get a lot of. I thought people like a lot of promoters would get involved and contribute, but none yeah. of them did. No one did. I remember one guy called Patsy Lehman, who was a trainer. He he, he put in a thousand pounds, which was you know he had no need to do it. It was his training free from a fight, and he put it in. He was the only other person who contributed. And uh, us, the reason I felt it had to happen, because obviously we'd had terrible tragedies in the ring with um, Michael and um, Michael, the Gerald McClellan, a few other things happened. And we had to do something. I thought as a sport, we we have to, you know, we, we got the support of eminent uh, neurosurgeons, like um, John Sutcliffe, Peter Hamlin, Couple of other guys, a couple of other neurosurgeons, which I was quite surprised because I, I I felt that they would, um, you know, shy away from boxing, but it was quite the reverse, and they helped they helped the sport develop some safety aspects, and one of them was to they 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 had a previously had a uh, they used to do skull X-rays, and the skull X-rays were there to determine the thickness of the skull, but that could be affected if you had a cold for some reason. Your skull could be a little bit thin or whatever, but but it wasn't a really it wasn't really a good test. To, it, it didn't test the test or show whether there's any deterioration in the brain. The only way you could do that at the time was an MRI scan, and you had to start somewhere. So you had to have a, a base where every fighter had one. Then you could de- monitor and determine whether there was any de- deterioration, you know, on the brain in you know over that period of twelve months. So, you know, the border control was struggling and I, I you know, I, I made a decision to do it and I felt that I felt it needed to be done and we did it. Yeah, that's no, brilliant. Um, has it ever caused you any issues? Um, the fact that you supported the boxers and the board financially to some degree over the years, has it ever kind of come back to? Oh, big time, big time. In fact, it, it, it talk about bite me on the ass. I mean, I did that not to support the board. I did it to support boxing. Because otherwise, what would have happened? The border control would have gone by the wayside. Obviously, we'd have formed another, or another border control would have replaced them. And no doubt about that. But um, it was it was terrible. For, I thought it would have been terrible for the sport for that to happen. Um, and more more important, you know, more importantly for me, having done that, the ball to show they weren't in my pocket, as everybody kept saying, kept <laughs> kept finding against me so much so I wind up seeing them. Um, so if we go forward, I was thinking back through some of the the kind of rivalries as a promoter that you'd have had over the years. You mentioned earlier the cartel with Mickey Duff, Terry Lawless, um, Jarvis and Mike. Then the likes of, um, in, on the UK side, Frank Maloney, Barry Hearn, Mick Hennessy, Eddie Hearn. And then the US, you've had Don King, uh, Bob Arum. The list goes on and on. Um who have you had the best relationship out of all of those rivals rivalries with? Well, at the time when we were when we were together was Don King, um, and also and Frank Maloney came to work. He worked me for a couple. He worked for me when he started out, and then came back to work for me a couple of years later or a few years later. 
after Lex Lewis had, had gone. Um, probably Bob Arum over the years. I mean, you know, the first time we did a fight together was back, I've known him for a long time, but the first time I did a fight was in 19, 1985. So we've been going a long time. We're two old codgers. And it's still going now? Yeah, I was, you know, we're working on the uh, Tyson Fury-Joshua fight together. Who's been the worst on the flip side of it that you've had a relationship? Or I suppose, I know famously, kind of you and Eddie have never met or, or directly spoken, but is that the worst relationship you've had with any of the, the rivals? Well, it's not a relationship because I've never, I've never spoken to <laughs> him. So, you know, so there's been, a, you know, his dad, his dad and I were partners in snooker for a while. Um, we did a bit for a while. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not, you know, I was never a big fan of Barry and he's probably never been a big fan of myself. Um, Don, I enjoyed work. Then I didn't enjoy working, so that's pretty much of a crap, become a crappy relationship. But to be quite honest, I never think about it. I just get on and do my own thing. You know, I don't set out to fall out with someone or, or get into bed with someone. I, I, I do what I feel is right for the, the boxers that I'm working for. And if I've got to work with somebody I'm not too keen on, but it's in the boxer's best interest, I'll do it. And that takes me on to, I was going to ask, for your own motivation um, and to keep going over the 40 years, is it a case for you of you've always looked to be better than others or is it that you try and be the best that you can be? It's, I always try to be the best that I can be. I don't really, I don't really look, look as much to see what other people do. You know, when I got into boxing, I mean... <laughs> you used to go, as I mentioned, the two venues you go, say, for example, the Albert Hall, the main event would glove up in the ring. The shows were shown up, were broadcast on a delayed basis. They take place on a Tuesday. They'd show them on a Wednesday on on um, uh, sports night, and then they'd show highlights on grandstand on the Saturday. So they would, the, the main, if there's a title fight, they'd get into the ring, they'd glove up in the ring. So you can imagine how long that takes. They're gloving up. They'd Invariably come in, only one fight would come into a fanfare, which would be some scratchy old record, a 78, you know, trumpet plan, or they may get a trumpet that's there to fanfare them in. And I, and that was it. Um, the round card was carried by a, a bloke called Ernie Draper, who, who came to work for me and become our whip, worked work for me longer than anyone worked for me, nearly 40 years. Um, so, you know, when I got in, I thought of razz, a bit of razzmatazz, the music, the you know, the lights. Uh, we brought advertising on the canvas, on the ring post. I fought very hard to get all that because obviously it brought more income in, thus enabling us to put on better quality fights. Um, just changed all that. We changed it all, all together. I can remember the, 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 the first show of all the music game, the then General Secretary Ray Clark sitting at ringside with his hand over his ears. Like, you know, like some old, like I am now, some old codger got his hand over his ears because of the, the noise. God, turn that down. Um, like your granddad, but it was, um, it was, but you know, I mean, that, that side of it, I enjoyed. And that was like, I'm, I'm doing my thing. I want to do, I'm doing it. Now, you know, now everybody copies that, copied that. So it changed the way it was, it was. Um, and I, you know, as I say, I've always just got on with it and just done what I feel is right. And, you know, once I've got my blinkers on, you know, I, I feel I'm pretty, you know, I'm a pretty determined person and I'll get on with it and do it. And uh, obviously I've made more more right decisions and bad decisions, although I've made some bad decisions over the years. 
What what would be the worst one? Do you think in terms of your uh, your, your kind of bad decisions? I think um, I got, when I got involved, I, I, I you now I floated a couple of companies, and uh, we were going to you know the, the time the London Ring was built, and I brought a guy on board called Chris Roberts, who had been the, who'd run Citibank in Europe, and also an old an old uh, the oldest stockbrokers in in the UK. He was. Uh, um, Citibank owed it, and he he he, he were on that called scrimmage of it because it's no longer around. He came to me, and uh, you know, and and I brought him on board. I gave him a percentage of the company, and he just destroyed everything. It, you know, my big thing about which I'm good at doing, which is going out, creating business, you know, finding the business, promoting the business. I needed the back the backroom staff, which was going to be him, to make sure that you know the fight, everything was dealt with, the paperwork, the finances, whatever. And he, he he absolutely completely let me down so badly that it it got to it got got to the stage that I got arrested for uh, VAT evasion. And that was the one where you famously told the policeman to fuck off outside the. Yeah, absolutely right. If I see him there, I'll tell him the same thing. <laughs> it's outrageous. You know. You know what? It, all they it was nothing. It was just they thought they didn't even investigate. I mean, if you owe me some money, Martin, I'm going to pick up the phone. If you don't answer the phone, I'm going to write you a letter. And that's what, at the end of the day, the, the jury said it. I said, why didn't anybody call me? How do you know what's going on in my business? Why didn't, you know, I've never known anything like you. You're, you're, you're supposed to be collecting taxes and you're not writing to the principal saying this money's outstanding. And it went on from there. I mean, the judge hated me in the court. The judge kept saying, be quiet, Mr. Warren. But I knew if I didn't go and stick up for myself, I knew what the judge wanted to do, <laughs> so that was there. In terms of court cases, you've had a few over the years in terms of the boxing side of things. Do you see yeah. that as being part of the business, um, that it kind of comes with the territory? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, it's not, it's not unusual in any business. I mean, you look at most businesses, it's the same thing. You know, I look back at British Airways and Virgin, they went up in a big, big court case, and there was a lot of things that were supposed to be done underhand to... This, you know, to, to knock uh, Virgin out of business. And you can look at, you know, in, in various business and walks of life. And from, you know, from because boxing's under such a microscope, it's such a small world, um, invariably, uh, somebody gets tapped up like they're doing football. They want to breach their contract. And for me, the co con what you sign is what you're supposed to, what you're supposed to do. If I sign a contract, I've got to honour that contract. Both you should honour it or you shouldn't sign it. So protecting territory as much as anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to roll on to the Box Nation days. Um, so by that point, you'd worked uh, with TV companies of ITV and Sky, um, kind of pre the BT days. How much of their modelling of sport and boxing did you take with you to Box Nation? And how much did you apply separately to that? Because Box Nation was unheard of as a concept of having a channel dedicated to the, the sport. How That's right. How you kind of innovate and, and bring your own thought processes through? Well, it came about, Martin, through to my also um, got boxing up and running on Satanta, delivered them their biggest audience, same with same with um, with Sky at the time and ITV, in, in the glory days of ITV. Um, why, why did I do it? Um, Barney Francis was then the uh, head of sport for... Um, Sky, um, they, they had three or four, I think it's four promoters they were working with. Each had eight shows. As me, 
That was Matram, uh, um, Frank Maloney, and Ricky Hatton. And I had about a year left on my contract, and I met with Barney. I said, "Look, you know, I'll see exactly what the deal was." They saying you give you eight fights, and they give us a hundred grand a show. So I said, "So you're telling us our total income will be eight hundred grand? How on earth am I supposed to run a business and build boxing on that?" And they were losing the flavour for it, and you know that that's where they were. But they were the only game in town, as such, what they thought they were, and I sort of had it in my mind to do it anyway. And, I, and you know, and I thought, we said, well, the arena, they told me I couldn't have a venue. We built an arena. I said, let's go and start our own channel. So I've got a few of us got together. Late Bill Ives from um, Rainham Steel, he came on board uh, after we launched it as a as a partner and investor. And we got it up and running. And we, we start, remember, we started from scratch, zero subscribers, you know, no massive budget, marketing budgets. And the... Hey, Chisora fight, we got just under 300,000 subscribers on the strength of that. That's huge numbers. I mean, you know, pay-per-views don't get that now. So it was all it was all going, we was really doing exceptionally well. And MBT came along and Sky thought at the time that I was going to go back to, I was going to go to BT. And that's that about a year later, they gave... Um, they gave the contract to Hearn. They then got back in the game again, seriously, into they go back to Matram. So that was that was where they were. Um, they dropped out the other promoters. We I was Box Nation. BT came along and we had a couple of meetings. And they're they're a bit like an oil tanker, BT. You've got to get them, you know, once you've got once once uh, you can get them going, the turning circle is quite slow. But then once once they put the foot on the gas, they're on it. And that's what happened with Box Nation. And, uh, and we did a deal, but where our fights were being simultaneously broadcast on Box Nation and BT. And then they asked that I, they wanted exclusive on, on Queensbury shows. And obviously to, you know, to compete what I needed to do, I, I agreed to that. But Box Nation's still up and running, still still up on the BT platform. And uh, I think there's going to be some, hopefully this year, there's going to be some exciting news on it. But, um, you know, it, it, was, it was great fun and it was tough. And I'm talking about tough. You know, you're up against Sky. Everybody said, oh, it'll only last three months and there goes skin, which nearly did happen a few times. And we then we were late paying some money, some bills. You know, it was tough. It was tough times. Um, but, you know, I was determined to make sure everybody got, got did get paid and determined that it would be a success, you know, that we would keep it as a success. Um, the first, I think it's about the first uh, four or five months, all the shows went out free to air. So every show, we had no TV income. We paid it. That came from our pockets. We invested many millions of pounds. Um, and it's still running now. You know, it's nine years. That was nine years ago. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, I think Box Nation over the years has become synonymous with, um, it has a bit of a cheeky side to it as well. I always think back to the Eubank Junior, uh, Billy Joe Saunders repeat. Uh, running them up against other fights on Sky. Do you think that's fair to say? Look, they they would look. How'd you how'd you crush the opposition? Put something on against them. Now, you know what chance have I got? The marketing budget they got, uh, they had at the time. Sky, the cross ownership, because in those days, you know, obviously before Murdoch split the company up, you had they had the Sun, the Time, all the newspapers. They had the the uh, Sky News, 
So that's what we were up against. And I know how it worked because I was on the other side of the fence. I can remember being in Sam Chisholm's office and we got a pay-per-view and he'd pick the phone up to the editor, then editor of The Sun and say to him, we, want, we need some help on this. Let's get it moving, which was great. Great promotion. That's why Anthony Joshua made the right move when he turned pro back then. It works. It worked for him. And uh, and, and obviously we've done the same now at BT with, with fighters that we brought through. And we brought through some fighters on, on, on our little channel, Box Nation, we brought them through. Yeah. So I bought them there, Billy Joe Saunders, you say. But it was, uh, it, yeah, they, they'd run up against us. And I thought at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's no good cry, being a crybaby about it. Get on with it. So put better fights on. And that's what we did. We put better fights on. So if we get through yeah. to today, how hands on are you um, with the business in terms of, you know, you've got a reputation, you've got a, a proven track record of being able to build fighters that don't fall in everybody else's radar and when I think of today I think of the likes of Dubois Yard you know they didn't come through the Olympic cycles they were from gyms you know the Peacock gym yeah are you still keeping an eye on that that kind of unscouted talent and, and finding it yourself yeah uh, I mean I'm, I, I, I enjoy that I mean you, you have nowadays you've got the elite squad Olympics and obviously everybody you know in, who knows anything about boxing know all those fighters are but sometimes it's political. Fight, fighters don't get picked for Olympics or, or so forth because their face don't fit. Joe Kawasaki, Ricky Hatton, Tyson Fury. You can look at a lot of the guys. You look at a lot of these fighters over the years. You know, Nassim Hamid. Um, but they've all. <laughs> you've had more guys win world titles than than have won Olympics. The only one when he when he when he came with me, um, James DeGal, I really did fancy that he would go all the way, which he did. He was our first uh, gold medalist to win a win a win a world title. Um, I do. I, I am hands on, but my 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 son George is the CEO, and he does an excellent job. Francis and my other son Henry, both working there. They 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 do an excellent job too. Um, and it, it's for me, it's good that I've gotten there because they're family and I trust them. I've not got a Chris Roberts in there. You know, that was, that was my worry. You know, it's, look, if I, if I would have, we'd have got, the arena would still be, I'm really confident, you know, we'd have, we'd have been in different, I'd have been, we'd have been in a much different place had that been the case. But they, but they do an excellent job, um, you know, especially in these tough times that we've been through and certainly when Box Nation was running. And we've, we've turned our business completely around. I mean, completely around in the last three years. What's what's the most noticeable difference that you see in boxing today than over the last forty odd years? Is it around how fighters kind of market themselves, profile themselves, or is it something more subtle than that? I, I think the I think the big difference is social media. Um, some of it is good, and and some of it is not good. You know, the trolling and some of the crap that goes down. Um, I find, <coughs> excuse me, I. I, I Obviously, there's more boxing on TV now. I mean, when I started out, it was BBC television, and that was it. I had to get ITV on board, and they were the only two channels. Now you've got Channel 5, you've got Sky, you've got um, Premier, you've got Box Nation, you've got um, – uh, there's another one that does it. I can't think of it is now. But, but there's lots of, lots of opportunities for promoters. There was only one game in town back then. There, there were no venues. You couldn't even book a venue. They had control of the venues. The border control operates these policies. All those doors have been kicked down now, and it's it, you know it's it's a level playing field for everybody. And us, you know, I, I think that's all for the best. 
we're in a better place now than we were back then. However, back then you could shake someone's hand and it was a deal. I could pick up the phone and do something, do a deal with someone and didn't need a contract. I can remember doing deals with ITV back in those days and no contract. The contract sometimes got signed a month later after the fight had taken place. So, you know, it's uh, like, like, you know, as you get old, everybody harks back to the good old days and whatever, but they're good days today. It's exciting. It's exciting. And uh, it's a new way, new thing. And, and I, and you know, as we kicked off, as you just said, the young talent, there's some exceptional talent on our books now. And I know at least four of them, at least four, if not hopefully more of them, will win world titles. I know they will. And they'll be big stars. And that kind of, it brings me on to one of my last questions around what are, what are the challenges and the, um, the goals that keep you driven after 40 years and bringing through that next generation of stable of fighters? What is it that keeps you getting out of bed in the morning and doing it? I think it's my, a little bit of my ego that I, I like to spot a bit of talent and bring them through and say, I told you so. You know, uh, I enjoy that side of it. And I, and I enjoy, and, and I really enjoy, I like that, I like when they, you know, when, when kids turn professional, you're talking to them and, you know, you're meeting them and they're, you know, some, sometimes you, they're all different personalities. You've got the cheeky chappy, the outgoing ones, you've got the, you know, the, the more introvert, but all of them have got that, all of them have got that thing about them that what they want. And it's for me, I like to be on that journey with them. You know, obviously it's professional, we make money for it, but if I'm going to make money for it, they're going to make a lot of money for it. And they're going to hopefully, you know, set themselves up for life. And I like to like to think with my help, some of, some of the fighters that I've been involved with, it's changed their life and, and made, the, made them and given opportunities, uh, you know, to secure their family's future. I know it has. And, I, and that for me gives me a bit of satisfaction. Presumably over the years, you've learned the difference in how to handle a, a Sonny Edwards from a Daniel Dubois in terms of their <laughs> personality types. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you know, again, people are all different, aren't they? They're all different, and, and it's the same with boxing. You got, you know, Sonny's Sonny's a very, um, he's quite a quite he he he's gonna, he's going to make a good pundit. Yeah, he's brilliant he, on your show recently. Yeah, he's. Very, I'll tell you what, he's got a really he's he's he, he's and he's a good judge. I mean, he, you know, I, I, I and I and I, I I like I like that about him. Um, Daniel's a more laid back, quiet. You know, he he does his talking in the ring, doesn't he? And he's ways and and he's he's. But you know, when you look at him now, he's got a he's got a tough journey ahead of him now. You know, a lot of people think that he swallowed in that fight. I don't. I think he did the right thing with you know the damage he got to his eye, serious damage he had to his eye, and now he's got a more pressure on him than being undefeated when he comes back, and he's coming back into a, into into a significant fight for himself. Okay, we'll keep an eye out for that one. I appreciate your time, Frank. I appreciate we've uh, we've used it up for the afternoon. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to run back down memory lane, give us your, your stories and experiences. Um, and again, like the, the things that you've done, the innovation that you've brought to the sport is, you know, unrivaled almost in the UK, I guess. Um, so, yeah, congratulations on your 40 years. Thank you, Martin. It's really good to speak to you, mate, and I enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, we'll see... Uh, Maybe not another 40 years, but uh, certainly a significant number, I'm sure. Please, God, 40 years. They're getting a Guinness Book of Records, aren't it? So thank you for taking the time for the Square Mile podcast. It's very much appreciated. It's a pleasure, mate. All the best. For more interviews and features with some of the most engaging personalities in the world of TV and film, music, sport and culture, go to squaremile.com.